All right, kids, you are dismissed. Uh, and as they go out, uh, my name is Nathan. If I've not had a chance to meet you, <clears throat> we're going to be in First Thessalonians chapter 5. And uh, we're going to be taking a look at one verse yet again today. We're slowing down through these verses here in uh, the end of chapter 5 because there's so much in them. The temptation is, is to try to just sort of preach all of them and uh, hurry past them. But there's so much utility in slowing down and considering them. So uh, I'll read verses 13 to 18 in just a minute. But just to get us thinking about it, we think about this. Of all the human universal experiences, there's a lot of them. There's not things that all of us as human beings experience. None of them are as destructive as anger. We share, right? We have this universal experience of beauty. We have the universal experience of hunger and of love. We have the universal experience of disappointment. All of us have experienced these things, but no other human experience has proven more harmful than sinful anger. Anger has begun every war and every divorce. It is experienced by babies and boomers, young and old, men and women on every age of, in every age on every continent. Anger has birthed road rage and shaking babies. Anger has spread its deadly tentacles in the halls of Congress as well as every single athletic field in every corner of the earth. Sinful anger has destroyed families and marriages and nations. Sinful anger, friends, is everywhere. And perhaps it may surprise you to consider the fact that much of the Bible is about anger. Certainly not always sinful anger, but anger nonetheless, all through the Scriptures. From Cain to Noah to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, from Moses to David to Solomon to Peter to James to John, all of them are famously angry at times. But none of them are more angry in the Bible than God himself. You ever thought about that? The most angry person in the Bible is God. And the fact that God is angry tells us that anger must not all be bad. In fact, since God is good and righteous, never doing anything wrong, there must be times that our anger is in fact virtuous. And in fact, of course, it is. Uh, it, it would be it would be wrong to not be angry at sin, for instance, as that would not reflect the God of love. And so it's here, friends, that we see why God is so often angry. The reason why he is so often angry in the Bible is because God is love. And that's what's behind our anger. God is angry because God is love. He cares for what he creates, what he sustains, what is good, what is right and true. So when it is threatened, he is angry and as well he should be. For him to not be would make him not righteous. But unlike, yes indeed, unlike our anger, God's anger is always just. It's always proportional, always purposeful. Because again, God is holy. His anger is not meaningless or arbitrary. Nor is he quick-tempered. He is slow to anger. He is love. Therefore, since he is love, he gets angry. But our sinful anger, on the other hand, often issues from our love of ourself. Our love is not regularly issuing from our love of God and neighbor. We love ourselves. Therefore, when anger is issued from selfishness, it brings forth not discipline, not justice, 
But sinful anger, when issued from ourselves, issues forth chaos, confusion, and destruction. And the reason for this is because of sinful anger's frequent traveling companion. Revenge. Revenge. Paul writes to the church in 1 Thessalonians 5, starting at verse 13. You read there, by the way, this is on page 988 of the Pew Bible in front of you. If you're new to the church, you're going to want to have that open. Be at peace, he says, among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So here we are, we're going to look at verse 15, right? Verse 15, repay, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. That's the verse that we're going to be considering this morning. So let's take it, we're going to break it up in two parts. Let's take the first part, repay no one evil for evil. Now, that no one there, guys, makes it pretty clear who and when this applies, doesn't it? It applies to anyone in the church, and as we see in the second half of the verse, to those even outside the church all the time. No one ought to ever repay evil for evil. Never do that. And yet it's the most natural response, isn't it? The most natural instinct in the world when someone does something wrong to us is to pay them back in kind, isn't it? Someone ignores you, what do you do? You ignore them back. Somebody shoves you, naturally, you shove them back. Someone calls you ignorant, it's only natural to call them a name in return. This was behind every single argument I ever got in with my brother growing up. He called me a name, I called him a name in response. He shoved me, I shoved him back. He swung at me, I swung at him back. But it's not always violence. Is it? We could repay evil in a lot of ways with sarcasm, with exaggerations, with gestures, with sighs, with just ignoring the person. Repaying evil for evil could show up in a lot of different ways. And Paul says never to do this, to disobey that instinct. And as we will see, instead, always seek to do good in response. Now, if you're anything like me, you're hearing this, you're going too hard. Right? Too difficult to do. And it is, right? I I, I might even go so far as to say this is impossible to do. But let's remember what Paul is after here in the letter. Right? We always, first, most important piece of hermeneutics, hermeneutics is just a fancy word to talk about Bible interpretation, right? Is context. We gotta evaluate the context. Remember the context. Remember, Paul is writing to a local church. He has just finished rehearsing the gospel and the return of Christ. That's the context. And he's counseling us in verse 13. He's counseling the church to be at peace with one another. God has made peace with us in Christ. Therefore, in the church, we ought to be at peace with one another. But as we are counted 
righteous in Christ, right? We have that peace with God. We're counted righteous in Christ. We still need to grow up into that righteousness, right? So thus Paul's call. Back up, look back, way back up there in chapter 4, verse 3. Just keep in mind, this letter would have been read to the church. So chapter 4, verse 3 would have happened like 30 seconds ago. I realized for us that was last fall, right? So the context, chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. You ever wonder what God's will for your life is? There it is. Next week you'll get a little bit more to know what God's will for your life is. Paul says God's will for your life is your progressive holiness. You're growing up in holiness. God means to not only save us but to sanctify us, to change us, to reflect more of who he is. And that should be especially demonstrated in the life of the church, his church, the church of the gospel. The community, this community in particular, is supposed to be centered on peace and sanctification. And since it is, repaying evil for evil does not match God's will for us. It matches our old nature. It doesn't match our new nature. We shouldn't be committing evil acts at all. But just in case someone inside or even outside the church does something evil to us, we do not respond in evil. And evil, guys, is anything that is opposed to the revealed will of God. It's darkness, right? God is light. Anything that God says is darkness. There is never a time where evil or rebellion against God, there's never a time in which it's warranted. The Lord did not look at me when my brother shoved me and I shoved him back. The Lord didn't look at that and go like, oh, that makes sense. That's fine, right? The Lord does not look at that time when maybe your wife slandered you and you slandered in response. He didn't go like, oh, that was okay. That's fine. That's understandable. That never happens in the eyes of God. In fact, he even commands us this. Some of the hardest words in the Bible. Matthew 5, 39 to 41. The words of Christ, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Friends, how many marriages might be saved if just that was lived out? Repay no one evil for evil. And we need to be a little bit clear about something here, friends. If someone commits an evil act against you that is criminal, that is against righteous laws of the state, the Lord has established the government to bring justice to that crime, to that evil. Romans 13 is very clear about this. Romans chapter 13 uh, says that the government is instituted by God to administer justice to evil civil acts. So in other words, if if a crime is committed in the life of this church in some way, it is right for us, just for us, to report to the government in order to let the government deal with it. But even then, it is not right for the government to do evil to the evildoer. Instead, the government ought to do justice, right? That is to say, they should give a proportional penalty that will punish the crime and therefore teach and maintain the community uh, as to what is right and good. But civil justice, friends, is not the responsibility of the church. God gave the government the sword of justice. God gave the church the keys to the kingdom. Some would say the 
Families have been given the rod, as it were, of discipline. But our job is not the sword. Our job is the keys. Our job in the church is to exercise the keys of restorative church discipline over evil in order to make clear to the evildoer and to the external community that this is not in keeping with what it means to follow Christ. But friends, even in church discipline, never should the church administer evil to evil. Never. Parents that have children that do evil, right? You have a good authority that is meant to, 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 to teach your children in the way of Christ. Never to do evil. In all of these institutions, all these sort of authoritative places, we talked about authority a couple of weeks ago. Authority is to be used rightly and appropriately. And we are never to administer evil for evil. And so it's at this point we have to ask a couple questions. Here's the first. Beyond keeping the peace, which is important, right? That's the context, right? He wants you to not repay evil for evil so as to maintain, strengthen the peace in the church. Beyond keeping the peace, why would the Lord command this? It's really hard. Goes against our instincts. Why would the Lord command us to not repay you for evil? And then secondly, second question, how in the world are we going to do it? Because it seems impossible, right? Those are the questions. Let's take that first question. Beyond keeping the peace, which is so important, right? God has made peace with us. We have the stewardship of the gospel. We should be at peace with one another. Beyond that, why would the Lord command this? There's two reasons why he commands us. Here's the first. The first reason why he tells us to not repay evil for evil is because when we repay evil for evil, evil wins. And it advances in our hearts, in our community, and around. That's the first reason why. Because evil wins. On the other hand is, well, look, when we repay evil good for evil, then evil stops and good advances. When someone cuts me off, for instance, as an example of this, when someone cuts me off on the road, my instinct, I'm sure none of y'all have the same instinct, right? My instinct is to hit the gas, get up on them, and intimidate them, right? And if I can do that, and if I look in the mirror and I notice that they're worried or flustered, I feel good, right? I feel like I taught them a lesson. I might even say I was justified in doing that to them since they cut me off. I feel justified. We repay, in other words, we repay evil for evil, not just because it's instinctive, because it feels, but because it feels right and it even feels good. But if I give evil back to them, not to say that somebody cutting off is evil, but just as an example, if I give evil back to them, not justice, but evil back to them, it wasn't justice that was served, friends. It was my ego that was served. I put the person I was, uh, I drove, I was putting them in danger when I got up on them. I put, I was putting them in danger. I placed myself, if I have my family in the car, I put myself and my uh, family in danger. Other image bear, I put them in danger. For what? For what? Why? So as to hurt them, intimidate them, and threaten them. I might say that it was to teach them a lesson. Maybe I might even say, you know, it was to give them justice. But really, it was about me getting mine. That's what it was about. Likewise, friends, if you sinfully slander someone, say something hurtful to somebody else, and you somebody slanders you and you slander them in response, it feels good to respond in kind, to slander them back. It feels good, doesn't it? I might even say that it was warranted. 
But because you used your words to wound another person, not build another person, but you used your words to wound another person, then therein it's sinful. It's not helpful. If your child disobeys you and you, in sinful anger, strike them in response, that's repaying evil for evil. And you did, what you did was let evil win. And friends, while God is the angriest person in all the Bible, not once did he repay evil for evil. Not once. Not once. In every single instance, God's anger was used for righteousness. In every single instance, God used his anger to administer justice. He did not respond to wound somebody just to feed his ego. He did it as a measure of justice to bring about righteousness. We can think of an example, say, of Sodom and Gomorrah, that well-known incident in Genesis 18 where God inflicts wrath. This place, Sodom and Gomorrah, is full of evil, right and left. It's all over the place. And in advance of the Lord's wrath on this place, his anger on this place, uh, he goes and warns Abraham, tells him what he's going to do. He says, I'm going to wipe this place out. And Abraham famously says, well, what if there's 50 righteous people in it? Are you going to do it then? What if there's 30 righteous people? What if there's 10 righteous people in it? You're going to wipe it out then? You see what Abraham's concern is? It's the same concern as Paul here. Same exact one. He's saying, are you going to repay evil for evil? They did evil. You're going to do evil? In other words, you're going to wipe a bunch of people out and, and smoke a bunch of innocent people? He has the same concern. But God assures him that he would not level Sodom and Gomorrah. If there was 50, if there was 30, if there was 10 righteous people. In other words, God was saying to him, and Abraham responded in such a manner, God will do what is just. He'll do what is right. He said that. Abraham said, surely God will do what is just. He said that because he knew. Abraham knew who, that God was holy. He, he, he does what is holy. He does what is right. Therefore, he wouldn't let evil win by repaying evil with evil. Instead, he, he repaid evil with justice. And therefore, he stopped the evil and brought about the good. And so, friends, if we repay evil with evil, we let evil win. In our own hearts and in theirs. If we repay evil with good, on the other hand, evil stops and goodness advances. Thus, the question you have to ask yourself when someone does evil to you. You're going to be tempted, right? Someone does evil to you. In that moment, you've got to ask yourself the question. Will you obey your unsanctified instincts and then respond in kind and let evil win in advance? Or will you pause and ask yourself the question, how can I let evil stop and make it stop and let good go? One of my favorite Proverbs, I quote it a lot, Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath. Not the same kind, right? I'm sure none of y'all have experienced this, right? One person says, uh, and the other one says, uh, and the other one says, uh, 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 right? What turns it down? What turns the volume down? Ah! Uh, comes down. More on that in a minute. But for now, just consider the reason why God does not command us to repay evil with evil, not only because it's wrong and it's evil in and of itself, 
is because he intends, God intends to destroy evil, not throw gas on it and make it flame up all the more. That's the first reason why God commands us to uh, not repay evil for evil. The second reason why the Lord commands us to not return evil for evil is because this is not how God in Christ met with us. The second reason why the Lord demands that we never return evil for evil is because this is not how the Lord treated us in Christ. Friends, the Bible is brutally honest about the human condition in ways that no other religion and worldview is. Right? They're so, so honest. Christian, don't say that Christian faith is the same as other religions. It's not. It's unique in in a few ways, but in particular, the, the way in which it understands the human condition. By the way, in the way in which it understands the human condition, Christianity sees the depths, the darkness of the human soul in no other way in other other worldview. Every other worldview says there's enough goodness in, in you that if you tap into it enough and do enough good religious things or nice things, then it sort of overcomes the bad and then you be good. Christianity says the exact opposite. It says there's not enough goodness in it. We're not born basically good. We're born basically bad. The Bible teaches clearly. Ephesians 2, we follow the prince, apart from Christ, we follow the prince of the power of the air. In other words, we're following Satan. We are by nature, Ephesians 2, 3, by nature children of wrath. That's the New Testament. That's what Jesus, that's what Christians' understanding is the human uh, condition. Which, by the way, I think better explains the world around us. We cannot consistently choose righteousness as evidenced by our constantly choosing unrighteousness, right? We, we are a slave. Apart from Christ, we're a slave to our passions, chasing passions, which war against God. And so if you're saying, if you're not a Christian, you're going, I'm not sure if I'm buying that, Nathan. Well, I'll give you a challenge. Try to obey the Ten Commandments this week, apart from Christ. See how long that lasts. You won't be able to do it. Probably won't last an hour. Certainly not a day. Definitely not a week. God describes our hearts in Jeremiah 17 by saying that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. He says in Psalm 14 and Romans 3 that there are none who are righteous, no, not one. There are none who seek God, right? The whole point of the Old Testament is this point exactly. The point of the Old Testament, right? You should, you should be re- if you're reading the Old Testament going, dude, a lot of these dudes are really messed up. Now you're getting the point, right? That's the point. Right? That they're messed up. That they, Israel is given everything. They're given everything. They're given all the good stuff, right? They get deliverance from their oppressors. They're given a beautiful place to live, right? They're given God's law. They're given God's presence along with God's authorities to instruct them and to warn them. They're given all of these things. And how does it end up? In the end, it's a complete disaster. Why? Because by nature, we're not basically good, but basically evil. That's the point of the Old Testament. It's going to have to be God to do this. And yet, what did God God do in the face of all that evil? In the Old Testament, in our own hearts, when we think about that, what did God do? He didn't repay evil with evil. Never did it. Instead, how does God respond? We flip over the page from the Old Testament into the New Testament, and what do we see? Son of David the son of Abraham, the son of God, come to die for sinners. The only one in Christ, the sinless one, the only one that turned the other cheek every single time he was slapped. And by the way, he was slapped a lot. 
The only one that walked the extra mile every time, Jesus. The only one that never repaid evil for evil, but in fact, always, always, always did good. That was Christ. And think about all the temptation that he had. Think about how he was treated. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was flogged. He had a crown of thorns shoved on his head. He was crucified, taking nails into his hands and his feet as a substitute for sinners. And not once, not once did he utter a word in retribution, even though he was the only truly innocent victim. Like a lamb sled to the slaughter, he went without a word. He was silent. In fact, even on the cross, as he's being crucified, suffering, wailing, having done no wrong, there on the cross, he said of his evil uh, persecutors, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Good in response to the evil. So the second reason why the Lord tells us to not return evil for evil is because that is not what God in Christ did for us that believe. Therefore, since the church is in Christ, stewards of the gospel of Christ, they are then empowered to image the love of Christ to an evil world, stopping the spread of evil through its allegiance to the gospel. Which leads to that second question. How in the world are we going to do this? Not repay evil for evil. It's not only difficult, it seems impossible to do consistently. So how does the Lord expect us to live this out? And the answer, of course, is that same word. It's the gospel. That's how. Beloved, the silence of Christ, this is so important. The silence of Christ in the face of evil as an example is not strong enough to keep you from doing it. Got that? The silence of Christ in the face of all the evil that he gave, that example is not going to be strong enough, just as an example, is not going to be strong enough to have you not repay evil with evil. Mere examples are not enough. We need something stronger, right? Because the urge is way down deep to repay evil or evil. If the evil is going to stop, right, out there in the world, In here, in here, if the evil is going to stop, we're going to need something more than good examples. We're going to need something more than just fleshly indulgences or even laws from state or or even better leaders and the like or even wars. We're going to need more to see evil come to an end. We're going to need more than examples. We're going to need more than moralism to stop evil. It's going to take something supernatural to make it stop. It's going to take something supernatural, supernatural power to overcome repaying evil for evil. And by the way, that's honest in the ways that the rest of the world is not honest about stopping evil. In the church, we're honest about it. We're getting down to the root and we're saying it's the heart and it can't be fixed by mere moralism. It's going to have to be something outside of the man, outside of the world. God's going to have to come in and do it. And the God that comes in and do it is going to have to be a God of peace himself. That's what we find in the gospel. Supernatural power is the only place to stop this evil from keeping going and repaying it time and again, ramping it up. And friends, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes, sometimes I feel, key word there is feel, sometimes I feel like it's no different. My faith is no different than everybody else. 
You ever feel that? Walk around and I think, my life is pretty much the same as everybody else's. I feel that way. I'm not saying it's true. I just feel that. Sometimes it feels that way. I spend my Sunday mornings different, right? Everything else is basically the same. That's what it feels like. In other words, my life doesn't appear to be much different than any other resident of this city that doesn't have Christ. And I know that's not true, but that's what it can sometimes feel like. I read my Bible, I pray, I try to be nice, but then I can give in to my urges. And I ask the question, what's different about me, about us as Christians? Where's the power to not repay evil for evil and therefore be distinctive from everybody else around me? Where's it at? Then I come up on a verse like this, right? It feels impossible because it is impossible to do this consistency, to do this consistently in my own strength. You cannot do it. If you walk out of this room thinking, all right, I'm going to try harder to not repay evil for evil because Jesus did that and he seemed like a nice guy. If that's what you're walking out of here, you won't last 10 minutes. That's not the gospel. That's not the message of the church. If that's what you got growing up, you were lied to. Here's the truth. We need supernatural power, and that's what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I'm trying to say to us church family is this. Christ is not merely an example. He certainly is an example. He's not less than an example, but he's much more than that. My goodness, think about it. Gandhi, right, is an example. Buddha is an example. My goodness, my neighbor is probably a better example than me. They are often good examples. We need more than good examples. If Christ is the Christ, and if the gospel really is the gospel of God, then it's not only got power for salvation, but it's also got power for sanctification, right? The problem is, the problem then is not with the gospel. The problem is with us. We don't employ the gospel like we should. We leave it sitting up on a, Shelf, getting dusty. And we dust it off every once in a while. We can treat our faith like mere tradition or just some positive vibes. We don't lean into it. We don't abide. We don't abide in the gospel. We don't abide in Christ. Jesus said, abide in me. I will abide in you. For apart from me, you can do what? Say it. Nothing. You cannot do it. That's why just mere example is not enough. You have to have Christ. You have to abide in the power of Christ. Therefore, when evil comes our way and we are tempted to return evil in response, we have to abide in Christ in those moments. To abide in Christ in those moments. Looking not to ourselves, going, all right, the pastor told me I need to do it. The Bible says I need to do it. It won't be enough. In those moments, we have to look down deep in our hearts and go, oh, Jesus, I can't, oh, I want to swing back. I want to, I want to use my time. I want to hurt them. But I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Help me, help me, help me. That's what we got to do. We're going to abide in Christ. We got to go to Jesus. We look not to ourselves because we're weak. We look to Christ who is strong to overcome the evil. We look to Christ for power. We don't look to ourselves. We have to abide in the real Prince of Peace, Christ the Lord, by leaning into the powerfully real Holy Spirit that does dwell within us if we have been born again. See, guys, you might own a car, right? But unless you get inside of it and turn the key on, you won't go anywhere. So it is with Christ. Unless you daily, momentarily abide in Christ, 
You will not have the power to not return evil for evil, and evil will win. And guess what's going to happen? Gangrene's going to get pulled in on your soul. Right? Gangrene's going to start pulling in on these other people because you've given evil back to them, into your community, into the church. That's how it's going to spread. You've got to abide. You have to abide in Christ, the strong Christ, and then watch the darkness flee. Be quieted by the love of Christ, even when the evil around you is most loud. And you say, how? How do I do that? How do I put that into action? Well, that's the second point. Repay no one evil for evil, but secondly, always, underline that word, seek to do good to one another and to everyone. That always there is as stubborn as that word of those words, no one, in the first half. So the impossible, yet again, draws itself to our attention. We are not to repay anyone evil for evil, ever. And we are always to do good to one another and to everyone. And that one another there, you see the do always do good to one another, that reminds us, yet again, that this is written to a local church. Guys, you cannot find anybody in the New Testament that is not part, meaningfully part of a local church. Right, the, the epistles, these are the epistles are written to local churches, right? Even the pastoral epistles are, are written to pastors of local churches. So to be meaning, to be a Christian is to be meaningfully part of a church. And the everyone in this passage refers to those outside that church body. So it could be just anybody outside the church. But what is good, right? We've, we've said evil is anything that opposes the revealed will of God. What's good? Good, friend, is anything God says is good because God is the source of good. He's the definition of it, which is why, by the way, in Genesis chapter 1, he's able to say, and it was good because he's the source of good. God is the source of good, the standard of good. He's defined as goodness. Therefore, he can say like he does in Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Only he can say that. That happens a lot today, right? People twisting God's word, just as Satan did in the garden, to confuse light and darkness, right from wrong, good from bad. But since God is the source of good and right, he defines it. He alone can tell us how to not confuse the two. And he makes it clear for us, guys, in his word. That's where he makes it clear. Therefore, the revealed will of God in Scripture lays out the goodness that we should always do and the evil that we should never repay. In other words, one of the ways in which you know you're a Christian is that your instincts are not Lord. Jesus is. Right? Your instincts are not Lord. In, in, this, in this day, in our time and place, right, instincts is really largely taught as Lord. But we say Jesus is Lord. And one of the ways in which we know that is by Jesus, that Jesus is Lord of our lives is we, we give to the good. We, we follow him as Lord. And so we give to his definitions of good and evil. We don't get it right all the time, but one of the ways we get it right is we repent when we get it wrong. That's how we know we're in the Lord. He's the source of good. The important thing, though, for us here in this point is that here we have the answers to what we should do in order to see peace preserved and evil destroys and good advance. Right here we have some answers. But also we get some more specific answers in another, power, in another passage. So I'm going to ask you to flip a little bit. Go back in your Bibles. For those of you that have the... Uh, um, church pews, the pew Bibles there in front of you. Go back left hand, Romans chapter 12. That's on page 948. 948. 
We had a lot of examples here of what it looks like to always do good and not return to evil for evil. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. This is Paul, by the way. Paul writing again to the Christians in Rome. He gives some very, he's, he's already in, in the book of Romans. He spent a lot of time talking about the gospel again. And here he's starting to apply it. Gospel, 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 application. Here's what he says. Paul says, repay no one evil for evil. Sound familiar? But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. I love this next verse. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Love that verse, right? If possible, so far as it depends upon you. In other words, you can't control other people, guys. You can't control other people, but you can control your response to other people. That's what he's saying. By the grace of God, by the power of the gospel. You can't control them, but you can control your response, right? So as it is possible, as it depends upon you, right, then live at peace. If your enemy doesn't live at peace, well, that's on them. That's not on you, right? If you've labored to try to live at peace with them, but they've not lived at peace with you, they, they continue, that's on them. That's not on you. Insofar as it depends upon you, live at peace with them. But then he goes on. Beloved, don't lose sight of that, guys. Beloved, Christian, you are beloved. Beloved. What's the next word? Never. Never avenge yourselves. What do we do, God? Never avenge ourselves? Yeah. What do we do? Well, we leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. How do I do that? But overcome evil with good. That's how. So friends, the way that we will destroy the advance of evil in our own souls, in our church, in our community, in our world, and maintain and enjoy peace in this fellowship and spread peace to the world, friends, it's not going to come by being overcome by evil and then returning it. That's not how it's going to happen. It feels good to do that, but that just makes things worse. What God says is the way that evil stops is by overcoming evil with good. Martin Luther King Jr. says it best, right? Darkness does not drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate does not drive out hate. Only love can do that. So how do we do this? Well, we've already said, right, we trust God for the strength to do this. In the way of Christ, by his revealed will, whatever he says, but can we be a little bit more specific? Yeah, I'm going to give you three ways which we do this good. Slide back up to Romans 12, 14. Here's the first way. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So when evil is given to you, the way evil dies and good advances is by your doing good to them. You'll note this word of blessing. And the blessing that you can give them is the blessing of prayer. That's what Jesus does. Remember what I said before, right? He's evil, evil, evil on the cross. What does he do? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He prays good for them. 
That's one way that we cannot repay evil for evil, but instead do good through prayers of blessing. And by prayer, I don't mean imprecatory prayers. There are a place for imprecatory prayers. You want to come up and talk to me? We'll talk about those later. Right? If you're one, what's up? Imprecatory prayer. That's those ones on the Psalms when the psalmists are like, smoke them, God. Right? Those. There's a place for those. Right here, we're talking about interpersonal relationships. All right? Here, Paul is saying, right, we need to play blessing, blessing on them. Interpersonal, play, pray blessing on them. Guys, it's hard. Man, I've done this. I can so testify. This is so true. It is hard to hate and to do evil to someone when you are standing before the throne of God asking for that person's good. Somebody does something wrong for me and I go back, right? If Bob does something evil to me, right? God, I pray that Bob would see and savor Christ. It's hard to do evil to Bob in that moment when I ask that. Do good to him, God. Do good to him. Show him Christ. Remind Bob that there's more wealth in the kingdom of heaven than all this rust here on the earth. Remind him of that, God. Help him see that, God. Do good to him. Bless, do not curse. Pray blessing on the one. That's one way in which you can return evil. Sorry, don't do what I just said. That's one way you can return good for evil. That would, yeah. Second way, you can always do good to each other and everyone in the face of evil. Stopping the advance of evil and bringing about good's advance. Second way is you entrust justice to God through prayer and meditation. You entrust justice to God through prayer and meditation. Justice is not ours, guys. By repaying evil for evil, you know what that does? That makes you like God. You go right back to the garden. By your repaying evil for evil, you put yourself in the place of God to try to administer the justice you think happens, needs to happen. In your definitions, in your way, in your timing. But it's not ours. That's what Paul says here in Romans 12. Through prayer and meditation, give the person and the whole of the situation to God, right? It is God to avenge. It's not me. That's what Paul says. And this, again, is exactly what Jesus did. Take a look at 1 Peter 2, 23. See it behind me. When he was reviled, by the way, the context here is he's telling slaves to obey their ungodly masters. That's the context of what you're about to hear. 1 Peter 2, 23. So Peter even goes out of his way. He goes, I'm not just talking about the good masters. I'm talking about the bad masters. Submit to them. That's nuts, right? How are you supposed to do that? And then Peter says, 1 Peter 2.23, referencing Christ, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did he do? He wasn't idle. He continued entrusting himself to him, to his father that judges justly. So as Christ was being beaten, he wasn't idle. He was doing something. He was entrusting himself. Pow! I'm not, I'm not going to return. God, you'll take care of that. You're, father, you'll take care of that. And that, and that, and that. You'll take, I'm not going to do it. The closest he came, Jesus, the closest he came, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, John 19, right? Pilate says, like, do you know who I am? I can let you go. 
You remember what Jesus did? I love this because, it's, man, it feels so like what I, what I wanted to do. Jesus looks back to him and says, I can send down a legion of angels right now if I wanted to. He got real close, but he didn't cross the line. As Christ is being beaten, he's entrusting himself to the Father that the Father's going to deal with it. He did not, Jesus did not swing back, but instead he trusted himself to God who judges justly. He told himself, he said, Father, you will take care of this either in my death. These are the two places he's going to take care of it. You're going to take care of this, Father, either in my death when he is substituting himself for all the evildoers and the evil acts. Or secondly, he will take care of it. He will avenge it at the return of Christ. One of two places the Father will take care of. And so, guys, we got to rehearse that gospel to ourselves. We've got to rehearse that judgment to ourselves. Remind yourself that Christ, Christian, listen, remind yourself that Christ took your sin on the cross and didn't threaten you. He gladly took it. He absorbed all of your evil acts and he never once swung back at you. He gave you peace. He took the punishment. He took God's anger. He took the evil on himself and didn't swing back. He gave you good in response. That's the gospel. So remind yourself that that person who committed evil against you, they will be dealt with. Nothing is wasted. That thing you're thinking about right now, is it going to get there? It, nothing gets, nothing is wasted. Every wrong will be dealt with at the cross or in his return. That thought rehearsed to ourselves will quiet our souls. Remember the context, guys. He's talking about the second coming. We don't think about this enough. I think Curtis prayed that this morning. So true. If you don't do this, if you're not rehearsing this gospel, that God's going to deal with it, then you're going to let evil win by it living in your head or in your heart. It's going to keep living right here. If you don't give it to God and say, you take care of this because I want to take care of it, and instead, instead of giving it to him, you keep it. If that happens, it'll corrode your soul. How many people live in slavery to evil by their keeping evil instead of giving it to God to deal with justly? One author has said it well, quote, anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured. Entrust the evil to God who judges justly. Don't keep it. Give it to him. Otherwise, you'll be bitter. It's not us. And guys, I realize that sometimes it seems like Christianity. I struggle with this sometimes. These kinds of passages. Right? My, I'm a, I, I grew up an athlete. Right? I still think athletically. I want to beat everybody. Right? I want to beat my kids. My kids, I don't care. If I can beat them, I'm going to beat them by 100 points. I will do it. That's what I'm like. Right? That seems right. That seems just. Maybe it's not. But... So, right, so sometimes I come to passages like this and like, Lord, ugh, it just seems like I'm a doormat. But here's the thing, guys, that we have to rehearse. I have to rehearse. It takes more strength to not repay evil and to do good in response than it does to return evil with evil. More strength to do that, not less, more. You do this work, you're more strong. Because, again, you're having to, but you're appealing to your weakness, saying God's going to have to do this. It's so strong. You're appealing to God. It does not take the weak to do this. It takes the strong to do this. But that's why, we, again, we have to re rehearse the cross and rehearse the second coming of Christ. God will avenge. It will be dealt with. Nothing is going to be wasted. Third way, 
to always do good in the face of evil, be it small or great, be it a loved one, be it a church member, be it a stranger. We pray blessing for them. We pray for ourselves to let God avenge. We give it to him. And thirdly, we do as Paul instructs in Romans 12, 20, and we supply the needs of our enemy. This might be the hardest. Supply the needs of our enemy. Paul says there in Romans 12, right, to, they're hungry, give them food. They're thirsty, give them something to drink. I don't think, by the way, that means you need to, you need to give them all their wants. You know, like, they're going to threaten you. Like, well, I want a Ferrari. Well, let me go get you a Ferrari. Like, no, that's their needs. That's what he's referencing. Hunger, food, shelter, right? They need those things, you give it to them. They ask for a coat, you give them your tunic, right? In other words, supply what they think they are lacking. There's basic necessities. And so remember, if we are being stolen from, I just want to remind us of this. If we're being stolen from, it is criminal. If it's something that somebody does to us, is criminal. Remember, the Lord has ordained the government to administer justice to them, not to us. Right? So that needs to be, we need to hand that over to the government. But even still, we remind ourselves, cars, money, clothes, houses, every single thing. As Christians, we should know this. All this stuff passes away. The world is living for this stuff. It's all they got. We should know better, right? So we're willing to let this stuff go. If it's a slanderous word about you or a loved one says something that offends you, uh, either quiet down and play blessing for them and re- or uh, respond without sarcasm by offering something they might need. Here's a glass of water. Now, don't do it like a jerk, right? <laughs> Some of you are like, Nathan, you're an idiot. Well, here's a glass of water. No, not like that. That's not how Jesus treated us. So what happens is, right, this is forgiveness. If you ever wonder what, for how forgiveness works. Forgiveness, the way it works is you take the pain, you absorb the penalty, and you dismiss the penalty. That's what Jesus did on the cross, right? He absorbed the penalty. He took it. Instead of it going to them, he took it for us, and then he pushed it away. It's the two goats on the Day of Atonement, right? One is slaughter, propitiation, wrath, boom. The other one is sent away out into the wilderness. You absorb it, you push it away, and then you supply whatever they might need. That's what Paul, in in doing this, guys, if you do this work, if you supply some material need, hunger, like like a coat, literally they're cold, and they're being a jerk to you because they're cold, right? You give them a coat, you give them a water, you give them food, whatever, right? When you do that, one of two things is going to happen. If they're a Christian, they ought to be corrected in that moment. And they should go, oh, man, I so missed it. They're not a Christian, right? They might, at some level, maybe they're even still cruel to you, but at some level, there's going to be some well, some way in which it's not matching that ought to bring them some level of conviction that this we're not matching their evil for evil, which is exactly what Paul means when he says they're about heaping coals on their head. That's the idea. It's like there's this sense in which they see we're giving them good in response, and this is not matching. Something seems off, and that seems right, and now I seem really wrong. Look to give blessing to those in those moments, not cursing. Supply a need and watch the Lord work. Who knows? God might use it to bring them to faith in Christ because of it. Know that God is going to deal with it. You do good as Christ did in his power as you abide in him for that power to live it out. All right. I'm going to finish with a story that kind of brings all this together. Corrie Ten Boone, Christian woman whose family hid Jews during World War II. 
She and her beloved sister were placed in a camp by Germans because they were doing that. They were Christian people hiding Jews. The Germans throw them in a concentration camp because of that activity. They go into this concentration camp. Corrie ten Boone loses her sister, Betsy. She dies. After the war that was over, Corrie ten Boone travels around the world speaking the gospel as an evangelist. And so it happens when she was speaking on forgiveness in Munich, Germany in 1947. She was teaching on forgiveness. She was teaching on not repaying evil for evil. She was teaching on gospel good. Here's what happened. This is her words. Quote, There was never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence collected their wraps. In silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with a skull and crossbow. She saw not only a German officer, she saw a German officer of the camp that she was at. She knew this guy. She said it came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. And now he was in front of me, his hand thrust out. A fine message, young lady. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. He didn't recognize me. What would you do in that moment? She goes on, and I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. The man spoke, again, hand held out. I was in the camp you referenced. Again, he doesn't recognize her. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Will you forgive me? She goes on. Corey Tim Boone says, It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. She said of forgiveness, she said, I know it of forgiveness. I know it not only as a command of God, but as a daily experience. Forgiveness, she says, is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. You see what she's doing? She's abiding in the moment. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. And I love these words. She said, I can lift up my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. It's a great prayer. I can lift my hand. You can lift my heart, God. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And when, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. That's not natural. That's supernatural. You can't will yourself to do that work. God did it. Because she abided in the strong Christ. She was weak. 
She trusted him who was strong. By the power of the gospel, she was able to not repay evil for evil in that moment, but instead do good. Repay no one evil for evil, but always seek to do good to each other, Restoration Church, and everyone else outside this church. This is what Christ has done for us. This is what Christ is empowering us to do for one another and for our neighbors. And it is through this Christ and our love for one another in the church that evil will cease and peace will reign again until he comes. Guys, this is how we change the world. Not by our own strength because we're weak, but by the one who became weak so that in him we might be strong.